Um, we've been studying the book of Acts together, and I'm taking a tiny segue from that, because uh, I'm, I'm camping on Acts chapter 20, verses 23, 29, and 30, and um, we've kind of led all the way up to there. It's such an important speech that Paul gives to the uh, Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, that it's, it would be really foolish of me not to spend some time on wolves. So, um, you know, Acts 20, 29 says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It's not only a warning to them, it's actually a prophecy of everything that's happened throughout church history. And it happens all the time. It's still happening today. So for me to not address specific ways that wolves are around is significant. Um, it would be a, a, a dereliction of duty if I didn't talk about that. So today and next week I'm going to talk about the two biggest things going on in the church today that are wolfish. Uh, wolves coming in from outside to snatch people away from Christ and wolves from within that are leading people away from Christ. So that's that's my purpose. So kind of hang with me while we do this. It's not a normal ex exposition of a text. I'm going to give you some history. So every Christian's duty, it's not just shepherds that have to protect the sheep from, uh, sheep need to protect each other. So you guys all need to be aware of these things for yourselves. To uh, know the scriptures, to know the truth, to spot and be able to reject wolves for yourself, but also to warn your brothers and sisters in the Lord, that's a wolf right there, and to turn away from them. So it's your job also, and this is a part of the history of the church, it's your job to hold leaders accountable to not accept wolfish doctrines or go in a bad direction, because pastors get pulled away, and whole denominations get pulled away. That's what we're going to talk about today, and you need to be really careful. Wolves are false teachers, they are hunting, like wolves do, for people to win them over to their error. I, I should mention that Luke does not have in mind snarling, drooling people. Wolves can be very charming, very intelligent, quite nice. Um, in fact, wolves really don't... If you ever watch a wolf on a, on a nature show, go after animals, they're not snarling and drooling, they're super focused. And then when the time is right, they make their move. They strategize as a pack, of course, how to do that. But, I mean, they're really focused. This Disney cartoon, you know, Luke didn't know about Disney cartoons, so he's not, he's not talking about snarling, drooling, wicked people that look like that. He's talking about people that are um, focused on what they're trying to accomplish, which is to pull you away from Christ. You know, all the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that have come to my door over the years have been just sweet, wonderful people. And I talked to them, and one couple times, you know, I've sat down with them multiple times just to go through the scriptures together. And um, they're really nice. I, I haven't seen the Mormons lately. Anybody seen a Mormon lately? I, I think they marked my house a few years ago. <laughs> some kind of sign on my fence or something. Don't, don't but there's some sort of database, like, don't go to this guy's house. But, but, um, but there are still wolves. They're intent on their purpose. Um, and there are wolves from outside and from inside in, in the church. I'm not saying any wolves are sitting here today, hope not, but uh, it can happen, it does happen. It certainly happens within movements and within churches and denominations. So I'm going to talk about two very different wolfish movements, um, one today and one next time. 
And uh, one is replacing biblical faith with unbelief, and the other one is just a massively distorted, uh, twisted version of what faith is supposed to be. So today we're going to look at something called progressive Christianity. These are folks that work really hard to demolish your faith in Christ. They, they labor from that, and they do that um, with a cloak of the shepherd. They give themselves big titles, they call themselves pastors, and all of that kind of stuff. So progressive, I kept, progressive is a new name, it's a new name for something that's been going on for 150 years. So there's nothing new about it. It's not progressive, it's old-fashioned. Um, so I'm going to talk, it used to be called liberalism or modernism. That's what it was called 100 years ago, one of those two terms. I'm going to use mainly modernism today because when I use the word liberal, and when we're talking about liberal religion, we're not talking about politics at all. It has nothing to do with politics. So you have to just take that out of your head. That's what's so hard to do in the current environment. So when, when I, if I, that's why I'm going to try to use the word modernism as much as I can. But um, long before Christianity was viewed as, and some evangelicals were viewed as some way and connected to a political party, which can be both a good and bad thing, um, nothing I say today relates to politics. Nothing. Okay, so keep that in mind. So I'm using liberal strictly as a new religion that grew within established historically faithful churches and denominations at the end of the 19th century. That's the 1800s. Okay? So liberal Christianity stayed in the church um, while claiming to move beyond the historic faith. So they were working from within. The, the biblical faith handed down to the, through the apostles from them, they rejected that. So I'm going to sort of set the scene historically a little bit first here. So in the mid-19th mid century, the mid-1800s, right around the time of our Civil War, the world was changing dramatically. The, the worldview held by most people in Western countries, a biblical worldview, generally at least, even if they weren't Christians, that was being completely overturned in the middle of the... 19th century, completely overturned. It's, it's actually hard to grasp how profound the English-speaking world changed in terms of viewing the world in, in the 19th century. It's, it's really pretty amazing. Many things were coming together, together to create what, by the 20th century, people called the modern world. And a lot of it had to do with science, and especially science as the primary means to understand reality. That was really the big flip. I mean, science was going on long before that, centuries before that. But scientism, or the idea that science is the, the arbiter of truth, that's what was coming to the fore. So a geologist, a uh, famous geologist, said that the Earth was very old. Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859. Herbert Spencer, who's probably even more influential, published... In 1855, a book called The Principles of Psychology, claiming that natural laws alone govern the human mind. And it's really an expansion or an extension of Darwinian um, ideas uh, as it came to be. Because he, when Darwin came to the fore right after that, Herbert Spencer created this whole new world of ideas called social science. And evolution had to be applied to psychology, and evolution had to be applied to sociology, and, and the study of morality. Herbert Spencer said that everything could be explained by science, including morality. Today, they call that evolutionary psychology. And it's pretty amusing, 
to read how some modern evolutionary psychologists explain human behavior, like, uh, oh, I won't even get into it, that's too, it's, it's funny, actually, because they have to come up with an, ex we're made in the image of God, we have all these incredible attributes, incredible capacities, and they have to explain it in terms of evolution, and it's really hard to do that, so sometimes it comes out pretty funny. 1867, Karl Marx publishes Das Kapital, explaining everything in terms of this dialectic materialism kind of an idea. So Darwin, Spencer, Marx, all those guys lived in London, basically at the same time. And there's Charles Spurgeon preaching while well, that's going on. So there's so many new discoveries and new methods of doing things better. It was widely believed then that the world is getting better and humanity is destined for greatness really without the need of religion. In fact, religion is kind of impeding the way. Marx said that religion is the opiate of the people, right? If only we could get past all of that, we could do so much better. Also, at the same time, in Germany, in, in biblical studies, a whole new world was developing, taking those same sort of basic principles, the sciences that rules everything idea, and started ripping the Bible apart and trying to explain the Bible in naturalistic terms, because obviously if you throw out miracles, the Bible is a pretty odd book, right? So um, that, and they came up with these critical theories of how the Bible came to be. If anybody's taken a college class, you've probably heard of JEPD about Moses called uh, the, the, the um, documentary hypothesis and how that came to be. And it's just a theory. It was actually disproved in the 30s pretty strongly, but they still teach it today because it tears the Bible down, but it's meant to undermine confidence in the Bible. Well, that Germany was the educational center of the Western world, and, and American pastors, American professors went there to study, brought it back here, England the same way, they went there to study, brought it back to England, so that it really impacted the English-speaking world. So basically, the Bible isn't reliable, science will explain everything around us, including us, and we are destined for a glorious new world with man as the ruler over natural forces. All of those belief systems impacted the church. Big lesson, big lesson here. The church always has to deal with current trends in the culture. So whatever weird thing is going on in the culture, somebody's going to bring it into the church. And usually a lot of people. Sometimes it just kind of bleeds in. Other times it's very intentionally brought in to the church. That's that started in the Bible. Uh, that was going on in the New Testament, as we've talked about multiple times. The second century Gnosticism, that was it. It was trying to blend Greek philosophy and Christianity. There's always somebody trying to do that kind of stuff. So whatever the elite believe, or whatever is really commonly accepted among regular people, somehow it works its way into the church. It's a good example today, just in evangelicalism, would be we live in the age of entertainment. If they, you know, there's the age of exploration, the age of, you know, faith and all those kind. Of, this is the age of entertainment. That's the most important thing in people's lives, right? And churches feel the need to entertain people. Instead of worshiping God, we're going to entertain people and press all the buttons in their bodies. So um, there's always someone who lets the lets the world set the agenda for the church, and that was going on too. So in the 19th century, it was the promise of Man's mind is the measure of all things, the explainer of everything, which would result in inevitable advancement to a better world. Many churchmen, again in the German seminaries and then everywhere, were, were persuaded that the old faith just isn't true and had to be replaced. Now, they should have left the church. If you don't believe it, leave, right? 
But that's not what they did. They stayed and they tried to undo everything that was historic and scripturally rooted in all of that. They said the Bible's a wonderful story. It's a beautiful mythology. And you can learn practical lessons from this wonderful mythology. So they decided to co-opt the church, and that's how they became wolves, these people. Jesus did not do miracles. Jesus was not born of a virgin. Jesus did not rise from the dead. These are church people teaching and affirming these ideas. And that pretty much makes the church useless, doesn't it, if those things aren't true? So why even have a church, right? Well, there's no purpose. They, but they found a purpose. And the purpose was what came about in the very early 19th century, late, late 19th century, early 20th century, called the social gospel. So in other words, we exist to be, follow Jesus' example and do good things to other people. That's what church is for. Now, I was raised in a church like this, where they didn't preach the gospel anymore, they didn't believe it anymore. In fact, well, we had an old pastor and a young pastor. Old Pastor Stoldorf, he shocked everybody one Sunday because he said he believed in the virgin birth of Jesus. That was like shocking. I don't think the young pastor believed in that at all. But um, so, I, so I was immersed in this kind of world. No interest in sharing the gospel with anybody because I didn't believe in the gospel. But be a good person, yeah, that was what it was kind of all about. So Jesus is not a savior from sin. He's an example of human goodness. He's an inspiration. So the church can follow Jesus while not acknowledging him as the Son of God, coming to judge the world in the clouds of heaven, or anything like that. So a lot of, um, a lot of very important church people bought into all of that, brought it to America, fed it back through the seminaries, trained pastors in that thinking, and the church was changing very rapidly. Well, how do you think real believers in Christ reacted to that kind of stuff happening. Well, they're going to fight back, right? I mean, they're going to stand up for the truth. So they did do that. And um, in the late 1890s, there were a couple of pretty prominent modernist ministers that were actually put out of their pastorates. They lost their positions because people were catching on. But that was such a small thumb of the dike kind of situation because the whole thing just burst forth. And modernism took over the Episcopal Church, the Congregational Church, the Methodist Church, the American Baptist Church, and the Presbyterian Church in America, the USA Presbyterian Church. That was a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago, that that was happening. So there's nothing progressive about it. You know where the word fundamentalist comes from? Fundamentalist? Have you ever been called one of those? <laughs> well, a set of 90 essays was was published between 1910 and 1915 called The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth. And these essays were written by Bible-believing scholars and pastors from numerous denominations, all working together, responding point by point to the scholarship of modernism. And in 1917, Lyman and Milton Stewart, say, who are those guys? They owned Union Oil. <coughs> gazillionaires and devout Presbyterians. They paid to have the fundamentals bound into four volumes and 250,000 sets of these volumes were sent to every pastor, every missionary, every um, Sunday school superintendent, all kinds of Christian workers in the English-speaking world. They, they sent those things to them and it woke people up. So some churches started to realize that many of the shepherds and their flock, their pastors, no longer believed 
in the divinity of Jesus. They didn't typically teach against it. They just kind of didn't believe it personally and kind of never brought it up. You know, that's how they do it. So the battle was on, and it was a battle. And of course, it's, it's full of history, and it's full of different people, and all kinds of interesting things. But two individuals kind of emerged that represent both sides. So I'm just going to kind of tell their story a little bit, and then we're going to apply it to today's situation. So the first individual was a man named Harry Emerson Fosdick. Very eloquent, um, modernist method, um, not a Methodist, he was a modernist pastor. He was actually a Baptist that was pastoring a Presbyterian church in New York City. The other guy is J. Gresham Machen, a Princeton scholar in Greek and New Testament studies. Machen was the most able defender of the faith and the reliability of the Bible in that particular era. In fact, when I was in college and I had a Greek class, Machen wrote my textbook. I mean, that we were still using his textbook long after he was gone. In 1921, Machen became kind of a hero for his scholarly defense of the Bible against all of these critical theories in a book called The Origin of Paul's Religion. He was a real scholar. He thoroughly understood what the other side was saying, and he just turned it around on them, their own, using their own methods and showing how completely off-kilter their whole thing was. He was never an angry fundamentalist, you know, the, a raging guy, not that at all. He was a true gentleman and a scholar. He just had this amazing ability to, to take things apart and reveal their weaknesses and then say the truth in a very eloquent and beautiful way. Just incredibly skillful of that. So the modernists knew that attacking Jesus personally and his divinity was not going to be well accepted, so they often blame the Apostle Paul for creating Christianity. You still hear that today? The Apostle Paul created Christianity. Jesus was just this rabbi and he was misunderstood, you know, or Paul did this whole thing. And using their own reasoning in this book, Machen proved that the conversion and the ministry of Paul had to be due to Christ's impact on him. Not, you know, he saw the risen Christ, not the other way around. That Jesus formed Paul not Paul forming Jesus or creating Jesus. He demonstrated that. So, let's go back to Mr. Fosdick for a minute. So Harry Emerson Fosdick was a Baptist pastor of a Presbyterian church. Very gifted speaker. Very famous, because there was a new technology in those days, radio. And he was on the radio nationwide. Very popular show. And the most famous sermon preached in the 1920s, by far, was one of his. Harry Emerson Fosdick. 1922. He was very concerned that Orthodox Christians were waking up to modernism and opposing it. So he preached a sermon called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And of course his great desire is that they should not win. And here's the I'm going to read you just a couple paragraphs from the sermon so you can get a feel for this. Here's a snippet, okay? I'm not eloquent like him, but these are his words. <laughs> Already, all of us must have heard about the people who call themselves fundamentalists. Their apparent intention is to drive out of the evangelical churches men and women of liberal opinions. I speak of them the more freely because there are no two denominations more affected by them than the Baptist and the Presbyterian. The fundamentalists see, and they see truly, that in this last generation there has been a strange new movements in Christian thought. A great mass of new knowledge has come into man's possession. New knowledge about the physical universe, its origins, its forces, its laws. New knowledge about human history and in particular about the ways in which ancient peoples used to think in matters of religion and the methods by which they 
phrased and explained their spiritual experience. There's nothing new about the situation. It has happened again and again in history, as, for example, when the stationary Earth suddenly began to move and the universe had been centered on, and this planet was centered in the sun around which the planets whirl. Whenever such a situation has arisen, there is only one way out. The new knowledge and the old faith had to be blended into a new combination. Now the people in this generation who are trying to do this are the liberals. And the fundamentalists are out on a campaign to shut against them the doors of Christian fellowship. Shall they be allowed to succeed? It is interesting to note where the fundamentalists are driving in their states to mark out the deadline of doctrine around the church across which no one is to pass except on terms of agreement. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles, preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord. That we must believe in the special theory of inspiration that the original documents of Scripture, which of course no longer we no longer possess, were inerrantly dictated to men, a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer. That's not an accurate description of our doctrine. But that we must believe in a special theory of the atonement that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitute, substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. And that we must believe in the second coming of our Lord upon the clouds of heaven to set up the millennium here as the only way in which God can bring history to a worthy denouement. Such are the stakes which are being driven to mark a deadline of doctrine around the church. I'll stop right there. The gist of the message, I hope you picked it up, is are you really going to require that Christian ministers believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? That Jesus died for our sins, actually paid his blood for our sins? That he rose from the dead? That uh, the atonement is real? That the Bible is true? You're really going to require that ministers believe that? So you know who was putting those stakes in the ground? Shepherds. Faithful shepherds. And people in the pews that were faithful to the faith that Christ gave us. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So this modern faith, denying the virgin birth, denying the inerrancy of Scripture, denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ that saved us from sin, denying the second coming, it's to them it's like the discovery that planets revolve around the sun instead of the sun revolving around us. It's that certain. Which is intellectually completely untenable. By the way, I noticed that Mr. Fosdick didn't mention one thing in that sermon. He didn't deny the deity of Christ, although he didn't believe in it. Because that would be a step too far. And he knew that. So he picked these other things. But they didn't, the modernists didn't believe any of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. So John D. Rockefeller, ever heard of him? That name is sort of equated with vast wealth. The wealthiest man in America. He paid for 130,000 copies of Shall, we, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? to be printed and distributed to every pastor in America so that every pastor in America could read that sermon. Now, Machen, J. Gresham Machen, the Princeton scholar, because his book about Paul was so famous, 
Reporters came to him, because this was big news back then. Reporters came and said, Dr. Machen, what do you think about Mr. Fosdick and his message? And he said, the question is not whether Mr. Fosdick is winning men, but whether the thing to which he is winning them is Christianity. <laughs> it's a great line. He says he's winning people, but is he winning them to Christ? Because Fosdick so clearly denied the essentials of the faith, he was asked to step down from his Presbyterian church. Lost his pastorate. You know what happened to him? John D. Rockefeller built him a cathedral in New York City. It's still a place to go visit in New York City. Riverside Church in New York. And he became bigger than ever, he did, his influence. Then in 1923, 1,200 Presbyterian ministers put out an affirmation, a signed document, declaring their agreement with Fosdick and denying the need to believe in miracles, to believe in the virgin birth, to, not, to believe in Christ's atonement and the resurrection of the dead and the inerrancy of the Bible. You don't have to believe that to be welcomed as a minister in the Presbyterian church. 1,200 pastors. And the denomination was so overwhelmed by modernism already, they didn't do anything about that. They just let that sit. So the modernists held the reins of power in the Presbyterian Church. So in 1924, J. Gresham Machen, the Princeton scholar, wrote this book called Christianity and Liberalism. Now remember, he's not talking about politics. He's talking about modernism, okay? He wrote this book. It became huge, uh, where he carefully shows that liberal Christianity is a different religion from historic Christianity. It's pretty short. It's in fact, the uh, Saul, where's Saul go? He's he's listening to it on. Um, he's got a library. You know, he listens to books all the time, and you can listen to it on your phone. Uh, the whole book, Christianity, Christianity and Liberalism. He's telling me that he was listening to it recently. So modernism soon became. Um, an issue at Princeton Seminary, where Machen taught. Now, most of, most of the staff believed in the scriptures and in the historic doctrines of the faith. But other elements, the people that raised the money and kind of the board, they were modernists. Well, the seminary belonged to the modern, that belonged to the Presbyterian Church. So the, the Presbyterian Church took over the seminary and reorganized it so that the faculty really didn't have anything to say about what was going to go on there. In fact, Machen was um, honored with a position of, uh, he was nominated for a position of Chair of Apologetics at Princeton because of his books that have been so faithful and so powerful and so wonderful and so helpful. And the denomination education committee denied him that chair, which they'd never done before for anybody, denied a chair that had gone through that whole process. So they kept Machen out of that chair of apologetics. And then they slowly, took a couple of years, they took over the seminary, they changed the structure so they could rule the seminary. So what did Machen do? He and some of the other guys, they left and they created Westminster Seminary, which still today is one of the premier seminaries in America, teaching faithfully covenant theology and, and their, their doctrine, their reformed faith. So that's what happened. That happened in 1929, they started the new seminary. Now at the time, a lot of people were concluding that denominations were the problem, obviously. Because it, it's like a bureaucracy, you know? You ever deal with a bureaucracy? Um, once it's in there, 
it just kind of takes over and has its own sort of weight behind it. And the wheels are turning, you know. So a lot of new groups formed in America out of those denominations that I read about earlier, just the, all of those. But um, the Plymouth Brethren, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Evangelical Free Church, the fellowship we belong to, IFCA, Independent Fundamental Churches of America, was started mainly by Presbyterians that could no longer faithfully serve in the Presbyterian Church. That started in 1930. Surprise, surprise. Okay. I thought you were going to talk about progressive Christianity. You're telling us about old stuff. <laughs> I have been telling you about progressive Christianity because it's exactly the same thing. It's the same thing. So whatever today they call progressive, you can go on Christian, progressive Christianity websites. They've got all their information. All, you can find out all about it. It's almost exactly the same thing as modernism or liberal Christianity 100 years ago. Very similar. Liberal Christianity has been dying kind of a slow death in terms of churches. They're, they're just aging out and dying and closing um, over the time. So progressive Christianity kind of grasps a new take. Well, think of it this way. Modernism, liberal Christianity, was created to appeal to the modern man. But we don't live in the modern world. We live in the post-modern world. And it's really quite different, the, the attitude. Liberal Christianity was built on science and reason and scholarship and a belief in the moral and spiritual advancement of mankind. Progressive Christianity is built on feelings, which everything's built on today. We expect, I think, that man is not going to advance anymore. I don't know anybody that talks about that. I really don't. Anywhere. I mean, any public figures or professors or movers and shakers. But that was the driving thing of liberal Christianity. Mankind is coming into his own. And I don't hear people talk like that anymore. We, people that talk about the future, from all stripes of people, talk about us living very limited lives that are going to be defined by other people, and we will be ruled by technology, not the other way around. Technology will not lead us into a bold future, but to a surveillance state. I think that's what most people think. And I don't hear anybody talking confidently about the future. Although progressivism is designed for the postmodern world in so many ways, their arguments, their point of view, their perspective is exactly the same as liberal Christianity. It's just more open to absolute sexual freedom. I mean, Harry Emerson Fosdick would have been horrified by progressive Christianity because he could not have imagined the sexual libertinism of American culture today. He couldn't have, couldn't have imagined it. Okay, I want to do something that um, I never do. I'm going to play you five minutes of somebody else's sermon on the TV here. So, not yet though. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I talked, um, I quoted a pastor of the church. I'm going to show you a sermon from a different guy though. Brandon Robertson was the guy I quoted. Remember when he said, he said uh, to his congregation in San Diego, for those who are in an open and polyamorous relationship here this morning, I want you to hear me loud and clear. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your relationships are holy. These are people that have more than one wife or spouse, like couples or foursomes or whatever. 
They are beautiful, and they are welcomed and celebrated in this space. Do you remember when I did that, when I talked about that then? So this clip is a different man from the same church, and this man's name is Rich McCullen. He's a main leader in the progressive world. He's probably planted five different progressive churches. So we're going to watch this. Um, I want you to listen, though, for the following words. Hold on for just a second. Listen to the word deconstruction. The reason I love this thing is because it has so much in it. Deconstruction, red letter Bible, underwear and socks, and also listen for his view of miracles, okay? Deconstruction, red letter Bible, underwear and socks, and his view of miracles. Take it away, Rich McCullen. <laughs> the who and the what and the why of each other is what builds us to be a better faith community. It's not about Rich McCullen. It's not about where we are. It's about who we are, why we're here, and what we're going to do to make a difference in our community. That's what it is. So the next four Sundays, not only are we just going to have underwear and socks on the communion table. Ooh, I love that. Okay? But we're going to actually, I know I'm going to freak some of you out. So don't say, well, I may not go. Don't do that. Allow yourself to do an inventory. Open your mind up, please. Allow yourself to do an inventory. We're going to have about five to six round tables here. And for the next four weeks, we're starting a series. And the series is this, Faith After Doubt, written by a good friend of mine, Brian McLaren. Faith After Doubt. So many of you have been in a time of deconstructing. You're deconstructing. You're in a place of, oh my goodness, the church has hurt you. Religion has hurt you. People have judged you, right? And you're in a space of needing to deconstruct. And a lot of us are in a place of, we just don't know what to do with this thing called Christianity. You're in a space of doubt and frustration with spirituality, with American evangelicalism. Hello? For the next four weeks, we're going to dive into what it means to live into a faith in a world of ourselves of doubt. The institutional church is changing. Just like everything else is changing in the world. And you know what? I, people go, well, the, the numbers are decreasing around the world and organized religion. And oh, I'm worried. Pastors are worried everywhere. You know, it gives me hope. Great. Let's get rid of the junk. Let's, let's not the people, <laughs> but the mentality, the ideal, the theology that has held so many people down and back. Let's get back to the basics of Christianity, and I say it almost every week now, let's just get back to the red letters of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and live into that. Talking about Christianity flourishing, absolutely, 100%. Let's stop worrying about Jesus and politics, and let's just live Jesus today and just let it influence our world, our little piece of the world. And he took the loaves and the two fish, and he did what? He lifted his face to heaven in prayer. He blessed and broke and gave the bread 
to the disciples. And the disciples in turn gave it to the people. See the process here? And he did the same with the fish. And the disciples gave it to the people. And he did the same thing with the fish. And they were all, they all what? And they were filled. They were full. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> Jesus did that. It was awesome. Jesus took two loaves of bread and some fish and... <laughs> no, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. People go, well, there's a miracle here, Rich. He made a lot of fish and a lot of loaves of bread. I saw the movie. That's not what happened. You know what happened? Jesus blessed it, and everyone looking each other in the eyes said, oh, what did you bring? Oh, I have this. What did you bring? Well, I have this fish. What did you bring? I have this bread, or I have this mom's apple pie. It's amazing. Mom makes the best pie, right? And what did they do? They connected, and they shared. They gave. They supported one another. They loved one another. That's a bigger miracle than God just making a bunch of fish show up in a basket. No, the miracle here, brothers and sisters, is this. The miracle is the people connected, didn't know each other, had Jesus in common, connected and gave and shared and supported and made sure everyone in their group was fed. And they were what? Filled, full, and satisfied. That is the message of the kingdom of God. That sounds like Woodstock. Now that view, that view of miracles, um, it's, a, it's classic liberal Christianity. A person could have said that about the feeding of the 5,000 in the 1920s easily. A pastor would have talked something like that. That's not new, it's not different. I have... I heard that in the early 70s when I was a young whippersnapper, that, that kind of view of Jesus' miracles. And it's so completely bogus. I mean, you know, if you don't believe it, just say you don't believe it. But um, obviously the Bible intends for you to understand that Jesus made that. It, it actually affects a lot of other things in the story of the scriptures there. So um, anyway, science doesn't recognize miracles, so we don't recognize miracles. That's modernism. Now the underwear and socks part... I, that, that kind of sprang that on you. He was actually talking earlier that they're gonna, they're, they go out once a month and give things to the homeless people, which is a really nice thing to do. And this month they're going to bring underwear and socks. Why they're going to bring it and put it on the communion table and go, woo, I love that. That's, that's, the pro, that's progressive. That's not liberal. That's progressive because Harry Emerson Fosdick would never put underwear on a communion table. <laughs> Because it's so it's such a perverse thing, but but progressivism delights in the naughty, the perverse, the unholy, the the violation of sacred things, that kind of an idea, sexualizing everything. Progressives do that. They did not do that in the twenties. Uh, liberal Christianity, but mocking things that are holy is kind of par for the course in progressivism. Good works for the poor are a good thing, but that's not the gospel. That will not bring anybody to heaven. It'll, it'll make them survive perhaps a little longer on earth, but it will not bring them to heaven. The social gospel doesn't solve the human condition. It's nice, but it doesn't reconcile people to God. So first we have the social gospel. That's that. 
The red letter Bible. We only care about Jesus' words. That's what that means. If Paul said something, it doesn't matter. He's just a man. We really only care about Jesus' words. Nothing else said by the prophets or the apostles really matters. has any weight. Now, that is really deceptive to say, to say that and talk about you know, living into the words of Jesus because liberal or progressive Christians are very happy to reject many things that Jesus said. They don't live by the red letters. You know what red letter Bibles are? Some Bibles, all the things Jesus says are in red. That's somewhat. They used to do that a lot. Now it's rarer, but that's what they mean. They don't believe that. Jesus talks about hell far more than anybody else in the Bible. He calls it outer darkness. He calls it everlasting fire. He calls it the furnace of fire. He says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there. They don't believe any of that. So there's red letters they're painting black right away because they don't believe any of that stuff. Jesus details his second coming. They don't believe in that. That's in red. All that stuff in Matthew 25, Matthew 24. So social gospel, pick and choose the parts of the Bible you like, and all of these things, progressive Christianity is pretty much a retread of the last 150 years. One of the new elements, though, is that word deconstructing or deconstruction. What, what does it mean to deconstruct something? To tear it down. And it's talking about your faith. So if you believe in the Bible or the historic Christian faith, or if you believe in Jesus as God's, the revelation of God on earth, God, the word became flesh, you know, if you believe that, that's got to go. They're going to pull that down. They're going to tear that kind of idea down. They're going to deconstruct you. So it's the idea of rejecting the faith your family imposed on you or that you were raised with or that you came to at some point in your life and now you can get, get away from it. It's rejecting that stuff. That's how they evangelize. That's how progressive Christianity evangelizes. They look for unhappy people that had a bad experience in church. Now, do people have bad experiences in, in churches that preach the true doctrine? Yes, they do. There are bad churches out there, bad pastors, or people blow it, or whatever. There's all kinds of things. There's a, a lot of, there's a lot of unhappiness that has a legitimate foundation in a church experience. Some parts of fundamentalism really are harsh, and self-righteous, and rigid, and unkind, and load you up with all kinds of external expectations that the Bible doesn't even mention, and all of that kind of stuff happens. It's, it's an unhappy faith, people living in fear. There are churches like that that bear the name fundamentalist. People have also been hurt by the failure of ministers they put their faith in. Either they're narcissistic loons, or they fall into gross immorality. Usually those two things go together. And people are hurt by that. That's very true. And they are trying to scoop up those people and say that it's the doctrines that are causing this. It's the Bible-related <coughs> stuff that's causing that. But you know what? That's a, that's a farce, too. There's insincere people and narcissists and immoral people in every kind of institution. Progressive, liberal, conservative. I mean, there just are. It's understandable, though, that it's devastating when a pastor sins or sins against you and doesn't have any repentance for it, and he's, or he's just a total jerk, out for his own ego, of course that's hurtful to people. But for them, deconstructing is offering a way to strike back at that. And you can heal your hurts by abandoning the faith of Christ. That's, that's what they're teaching. Well, if you're going to really follow Jesus, striking back isn't allowed by him. 
for one thing. And all the things he did, he would say, move on to maturity. That's a, that's a toxic environment there in that particular church, but I have many churches that aren't like that, that believe in me, that believe in everything I've taught you. That's what Jesus would say to, to that hurting person. There's total jerks in the Bible. Ever read 3 John, that little letter, 3 John? There's a guy named Diotrephes. He's a narcissistic guy trying to run the church. He's a, a, a fool. There's people like that in the Bible. You don't abandon Christ because some people who claim to follow him are jerks. You don't leave him for that. Amen. There's human beings in the world. We're all imperfect, and some people are phony. If you left people because there's jerks in the movement, you couldn't be a progressive either. So a toxic church just means move on to a healthy church, where the word of God is honored, where the leadership is humble, where they can explain the Bible to you properly. That's what that means. There's a beautiful home and a safe place and a faithful church and a great Savior at the helm of that church, a Savior from sin. We've had our share of people here at AFBC who came from toxic churches, but progressives are trying to take advantage of those people. They're hurt and lure them away from the saving message of the gospel. That's why they're wolves. That's why they fall into the wolf category. A faithful church points people to the real Jesus. They don't invent a fake Jesus who has no power. He's just an example to follow and point people to that. So most often, progressives look for people who have a hard time accepting the Bible intellectually or morally. That's probably the most common thing they do. So here's a clash of the scriptures with 21st century assumptions. God said he made two genders. If you say, well, I can't accept that, there's at least 54 genders, well, then the progressive movement will appeal to you. That's what they'll offer you. But that's, that's, you're right. You're right about that. If Jesus says fornication arises out of the evil of men's hearts, a corrupt heart, that's a red letter thing. Red letter. If you say, but that's my favorite activity, the progressives will say, that's okay. You don't have to worry about that. That's just not a, it's not a sin or anything like that. If Jesus says marriage is between one man and one, one woman in the very red portions of Matthew chapter 19, progressives would say, well, I can't accept that. And in my progressive church, I am free to ignore that saying of Jesus. Contemporary sexual habits are probably the most common reason people embrace the progressive church. Because you can do whatever you want with your body. And they don't care. That's why the guy said, if you're polyamorous, you're welcome here. You're, you are holy. Holy! That's a holy relationship. You and Sue and Mary and Steve. And you guys are. <laughs> So they just want to be religious and do whatever they want at the same time. That's really what it's all about. Or they are woke and follow the full LGBTQ blah, 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 blah thing and, and, and just say, that's okay. We, we are woke too. That's the idea. Another progressive, the Reverend, Reverend Dr. Robin R. Myers. I, I love the titles. Reverend Dr. He answers questions on a progressive website, progressivechristianity.org. Somebody asked on their website, why follow Jesus and worship him if you don't believe all of scripture? Well, that's a really good question. Here's the really weird answer. I believe Jesus wanted to be followed, not worshipped. 
So the ultimate credibility of any Jesus community resides in its good works and its radical commitment to inclusion and nonviolence. That's, that's appealing to the modern world completely, the postmodern world. It's a complete rejection of the Jesus of the Bible, especially as he presents himself. In progressive Christianity, the name Jesus is just a tool. The name is a tool to separate people from the real Jesus. Claims to be new, but it's as old as the hills. It's, it's just liberalism in a sexually depraved form. That's what it is. Okay, I know I'm way over time here. Let me uh, close with two scriptures. Second John, I never get to read the little John letters here. I'm going to read Second John chapter 1, I'm just going to read this, verse 9, and then I'm going to read from the Gospel of John as well. Second John 1, 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. That's really clear. Now hear the words of Jesus from John chapter 8, verse 19. When he speaks, it's in red. <laughs> they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he's not going to kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's how serious this all is. That's how serious it is. And those are red letter words. <laughs> Let's pray. Our great Father, maker of heaven and earth, these things are not to be trifled with. Those who distort the truth, who reduce Jesus to merely a wise man, deny themselves the Savior of the world. And for them it means expulsion from your eternal kingdom. We pray that you would open their hearts to believe. That they would reconstruct the Jesus who lives and reigns today. The holy Jesus, the compassionate Savior from sin. Protect us from the spirit of the age and let us be light in the darkness and not extinguish our lamps. Make faithfulness to you our watchword for our lives. This we pray in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus.